Okay, welcome everyone to JavaScript Jam. Super happy to have my good friend Ben here, and he actually set up this cool captioning thing. I'm curious, how exactly is this captioning working? Still with us, Ben? It turns out I need to unmute my mic. That is apparently important. Yeah, but yeah, so just a quick caveat here on the captions. I see that Anthony's pinned the tweet with a link to the captions into the space. Twitter Spaces, once upon a time, offered captions. However, Nick Steenhout brought to my attention that it no longer does that. And so I've jury-rigged this solution. It's actually quite interesting. Chrome... Chromium ships with a speech-to-text engine. And so there's a website called webcaptioner.com that will basically just take whatever input is coming into the mic and spit it out as captions, open captions specifically. The idea is, oh, if you're streaming or sharing your screen, you might have a little pocket window in the corner of your screen with your captions, or it could be an OBS source. And because I do streaming of my own, I happen to have some... uh, tooling some software installed they'll audio loop back some stuff so basically what's happening is i am playing this space through my computer speakers and then using my computer speakers as the microphone input to web captioner and i have a little share link might be worth actually putting out a little blog post about that just in case folks need to do something like this in the future but i feel like this dovetails really well in in today's topic yeah, it's super fascinating how you were able to like rig this together. I'm looking at it right now as it's going, and it seems like it's doing pretty good in terms of actually capturing. Let's see. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and let our listeners know who you are. And for everyone out there listening, just be aware that this is an open mic. If anyone wants to come up and ask questions, you're welcome to. Me and Ben will be chatting about various topics in Ben's purview. And if anyone wants to come up and pick his brain, you're more than welcome to. Yeah, thanks for the little segue there. Yeah, so my name is Ben Myers. I am currently working at Microsoft as a front-end software developer on the Microsoft Learn platform. You might have previously known Microsoft Learn as Microsoft Docs. I have a huge passion for front-end development, but specifically my specialties are around accessibility and web standards and semantic HTML. I recognize that this isn't a video format, so people can't exactly see me, but I'm physically disabled. I've been all my life. I have some limb abnormalities and I'm hard of hearing. Um, And so accessibility is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because it's personal for me. And I'm really passionate about providing great user experiences for people. And I'm also really passionate about helping developers build really great experiences. I've found in my years as a software development, as a software developer, that oftentimes you can find people who are willing to be champions for users, right? People who are in the business because they want to build things that people can and will use. And I think accessibility is just such a great way to like really hammer that mission home, you know? I allegedly blog about accessibility at benmyers.dev. I also allegedly stream about semantics. I host a show called Some Antics, where I bring on guests from around web dev and web design to teach me something about building great user experiences for the web. I actually see a, a couple of former guests in this chat. Semantics has been on a bit of a break. We'll likely bring it back sometime in March, maybe, but I've just had a lot going on, needed to take some time to set aside 
for work and personal work and stuff like that. Hopefully some antics will return, but in the meantime, you get to settle for me hijacking some Twitter space. Yeah, and um, also pinning some links to your homepage and to semantics.dev. Yeah, Semantics is a really fantastic resource, even though it's not currently airing right now. There's a huge backlog of excellent episodes, many of which I am in. And as Ben said, lots of people who are hanging out here have also been former guests. So you want to give like some of the topics you've covered and some ones that have stuck out in your mind as like favorites? Yeah, again, this kind of hits on, I generally believe that a lot of front-end developers really care about building good user experiences and just often don't know where to start. And so with semantics, my goal was really to bring things to the hands-on level, right? Bring things to viewers in ways where it's a friendly chat with folks from around the spaces. We've had streams where, for instance, actually I see Lucia in the chat and Lucia was on one time just showing how to use automated accessibility testing tools, for instance. Homer's been on as well. Homer, I really enjoyed chatting with Homer. We chatted about just accessibility and design systems and specifically championing those causes within a within a company. Y'all just, if you ever get a chance to speak with Homer, just speak with Homer's great. Love Homer. But yeah, so we've covered tons of subjects. A lot of times they uh, really, it looks a lot like let's build a small thing and let's do so in an accessible way, or let's spend the hour playing with some tool that you likely haven't played with. I had one stream that I did with Eric Bailey that was about forced colors mode, which used to be known as high contrast mode. And it was just a matter of, pulling up a page in force colors mode and just seeing, hey, yeah, this looks mostly right, but there's a few things here and there. Let's remediate it. And that's just really what I love is that kind of like, it's the first step of showing you the extent of what you might not know about this. So yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, it is when it returns, it is Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, which is 12 p.m. Pacific Time, at twitch.tv slash dev. Yeah, yeah, one of the things I really enjoy about this show is that, as you say, it's very hands-on. And I find with accessibility and things where it's really, like, interaction-based, it's hard to just, like, even a really well-done blog post, it can be hard to get all the information from that. And actually seeing people work with the tools directly is really useful. I'd actually be curious because I found that when I was first trying to learn accessibility, people would point me to the specs and the like the things that are required to be compliant in very specific kind of ways. But I found that it could be very dense and hard to get into. Are there like any good, just like simple beginner resources that you would point people to beyond like the stuff you've done on your own stream? Okay. I would hope that my blog post would fill that gap. Um, Yeah. It's really interesting. The spectrum of what's out there. And also I will say since I've entered the content creation world around accessibility, tons of people have popped up and I think that they're providing this information in even better ways than I can. Someone I wanna shout out actually who's in this space is Emma Dawson. Emma has been regularly tweeting out accessibility accessibility tips that are just hugely actionable. These just bite-sized bits that um, 
with a really impressive cadence and that like following Emma is absolutely someone I see Elena's apply, applauding. Elena's in the same camp. Elena is also someone to follow for a lot of those really actionable bite-sized pieces. So these are people who are listening today. Go follow them because especially like the, these are people who are doing this with even more cadence than I am. But there's such a spectrum of resources and Picking and choosing the resources that work for you and what you need is so important because I agree, like going to the specs, like that is incredibly heady and especially the newer success criteria are a beast to work your way through. Like, Anthony, have you had a chance to read the new specs around um, re- the requirements for focus indicators? There are like four different categories of ways that a focus indicator could be compliant. And it all has to do with basically like how much of the perimeter is used up and how thick are these outlines or what are the adjacent colors? It is a lot. And when you're just starting out, I think it is like impenetrable, right? And I really like blog posts, especially blog posts written on someone's personal blog because those are usually of the nature that like they have a specific problem, a specific context that they're trying to address, and they're going to tell you about it. And oftentimes they're going to tell you what they tried and what didn't work and what ultimately worked and why they went with what they went with. Letting you see the full process, whereas specs aren't the full process, right? Like they are the final guidelines, more or less, right? And that is just what they're trying to be. They're not really how to walk you through a whole thought process. And so I, yeah, just in general, finding bloggers, like personal bloggers, I think is so huge. And I think that there are a couple of other organizations out there that are putting together some excellent resources that I find very approachable. One that I would recommend is WebAIM. That's W-E-B-A-I-M. I think webaim.org. I think that their website is a masterclass in how to communicate the nuance of accessibility in such a way that it's still approachable for someone who's very unfamiliar. Um, Also in the camp of if you're looking to just get started and don't know what to do, there's a website called the Alley Project, A11Y Project, and they have a checklist. I think you can get to it at a11yproject.com slash checklist.org. I forget. I generally I'm very careful when it comes to checklists because I think that we oftentimes treat it as like a one and done type thing of, oh, I just need to go through these very surface level things. But what I encourage is if you find a checklist that seems helpful, investigate every item in that checklist. See if you can understand the context that those things are being recommended to you in. And that's a good springboard towards really trying to understand kind of the scope and breadth of accessibility. And then you can work your way up to perhaps the more technical resources, such as those shared by TPGI, in some contexts, Adrian Roselli. I find an excellent middle ground, someone that I think newcomers and experienced developers alike can learn so much from, is Scott O'Hara. So... Yeah, that's my crash course in people that I'm learning from and people I would recommend for people at various stages. Sweet. I'm grabbing those links and getting them up there one by one. Yeah, this is really great stuff. And I'll be digging into some of these. I think you actually shared, I'm looking at Scott's right now, and I think you had shared his ChatGPT blog post with me. Yep, the one and same. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, awesome. Great. So for 
anyone out here who already is like an accessibility expert, is there something that you would say is like the advanced accessibility, someone who's already kind of learned the basics, like what they should do next? Ooh, I think that once at a certain point, right, you got to start getting involved in the specs. You got to start following the specs, I think. The it is incredibly interesting following W3C has a GitHub repo for the ARIA specs. And that is a very fun repo to follow just to see the conversation on what's recommended in ARIA, what the guidelines should be, how things should be implemented in browsers, implemented in assistive technologies. Um, so if you're interested in seeing like what the future of accessibility looks like, that is absolutely a place I would check out. I also think that there's a good deal number of blogs and resources that I think tackle very specific technical stuff. I mentioned TPGI, which is a resource that was formerly known as the Pacello Group. I think that they do a whole lot of the nitty gritty stuff of we're revisiting inline text level semantic elements like the mark, insert, or delete elements just to see how the support is for these things. That's a good way to get like very technical specific stuff that maybe doesn't broadly need to be broadcasted far and wide on a megaphone, but still contextually good information to have for accessibility people. So yeah. And additionally, I would recommend if there are resources that anyone in the chat is learning from that they want to recommend, please just yeah respond to the spaces tweet with some resources you recommend because yeah, just there's so many people out there. I know I'm missing people. I know I'm, I know I'm missing so many people. And yeah, it's a very wonderful space. Yeah, you're always good at throwing out lots and lots of references. I guess I still need to grab that link, but I think I got everyone else. Yeah, that would be github.com slash W3C slash ARIA. Interesting. I found W3C.github.io forward slash ARIA. That is the draft the specs. Spec. Yeah, I think that's the draft yeah. specs. Yeah. Gotcha. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah, so just a reminder for anyone who wants to hop up and ask questions, you are welcome to. I think if we want to pivot a bit, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about 11D and what's going on in the 11D world these days. First, you should say, what is 11D if anyone hasn't heard about it? And then we can get into what's the hotness with it. Yeah, 11D is a static site generator. I say that phrase and people in their minds turn to tools like Gatsby, perhaps. Things that claim to be static site generators, but still introduce a whole lot of overhead and still ship a lot of client-side code. 11D is perhaps in the classic school of static site generators in that you have content, you have data, you have markdown, and you're just transforming it into HTML, good old-fashioned static HTML. And I made a bit of a name for myself in the 11D community a year or so ago when I published a blog post about a process that 11D has called the Data Cascade. And I actually haven't been quite so heavily involved in 11D these days. I've just spent less time on personal projects and on things like 11D. 11D is not my thing. I didn't make it. I purely advocate for it. But it, it was created by Zach Leatherman, who currently works on Netlify. And 11D just hit 2.0, which is fairly exciting. It comes with some improvements to the dev server that should make it easier to onboard. I know that there is a bunch of other stuff as well. Truthfully, I've been out of the game for so long that I'm forgetting what all of it is. I believe Stephanie Eccles has on her 11D.rocks site a list of the things that are new to 11D. But what we're seeing a lot is this kind of, I would almost describe it as like a compromise with the industry, where for a while, it seems like the core ethos of 
11D and tools like it is that static HTML good, minimize client-side JavaScript where possible because client-side JavaScript imposes larger bundle sizes, it imposes larger risk, it slows things down, stuff like that. If you can get away with statically rendering HTML, you can and should. That seems to be the ethos of it. And since then, uh, the industry has more or less been dabbling in other techniques, right? including islands architecture, I know is a big one, and stuff like that. This recognition that, sure, like we can reduce JavaScript as much as possible, but you still need pockets of JavaScript here and there. Right. And so there have been a myriad of different approaches out there to get that to work. Some tools that are built around that idea, notably Astro, which I'm loving, by the way, Astro is fantastic, would also highly recommend Astro. But yeah, in addition, we're seeing like 11D starting to incorporate more and more of these things. Zach, Zach has been working on like kind of these ancillary projects that can slot really nicely into 11D, such as WebC which is a way to, it's hard to describe and it's very hard to, without showing you, it's very hard to articulate the use case for this, but it lets you, I'm going to hand wave around this, serialize web components, um, but stuff like that. There's interesting. Sounds fancy. Yeah, very fancy. Again, like I haven't had a whole lot of time to, to play around with these things, but yeah, this is, I think, an interesting direction to see 11D take. It's still, the ethos is still very much so we need less JavaScript. But how do you do that in a way that, because, I mean, when we talk about like Astro, right, and Astro is doing its islands architecture and stuff like that, if you want pockets of interactivity, you still end up shipping a framework, right? And that's still sending a hammer over the wire, right? It's still a sledgehammer of an approach. It's just that you can cheat yourself in when that gets shipped or how many client-side JavaScript components are shipped as well. 11 is still very much so got this ethos around not sending a whole bunch of javascript awesome it looks like we got lucia up here yeah. to ask a question yeah <clears throat> oh excuse me hi ben hi anthony so hey. i have a accessibility question i've been working on advocating around a lot of back-end technologies recently and any back-end technology you're going to see these like rhizomatic diagrams with all these nodes and these lines between them and I just have the hardest time writing alt text for that because it seems like the alt text almost defeats the purpose by the end of it. You'll be like, so at the top you have five like red blocks and then there's an arrow from one going down to on the bottom left, there's a purple block and the words just become very tedious. And the point of the visual aid for people who can use visual aids is to make it a little less tedious to understand the concept. So I was wondering if you... Either of you have any ideas for solutions for that scenario? Oh, that's tricky. Yeah, man. Okay. How best to approach this? Um, so you, the problem that you're describing here is you've got a massive diagram. It's very complex. And to be able to meaningfully describe it, you defeat the purpose of the diagram. And imagining that given that the diagram, it has a degree of complexity, but it is actually a clear diagram. That's hard enough right there, but yeah. Yeah, so I... I would be inclined alt text wise to, because I, I think as time has gone on, the understanding of what constitutes alt text has shifted. It used to be that there was a sense of like, 
you could describe, like you could provide a brief, succinct alt text, and then you could provide what was called a long description, which is the most creative name, right? But basically you could provide a very surface level visual interpretation of what was being provided, followed by a much more detailed explanation. And so your alt would be something like a flowchart describing describing a request flow through X, Y, and Z surfaces, right? Without necessarily going in depth into what every uh, flow, what every step is. But then I would still recommend describing in like paragraphs after the image, what the alt text, or sorry, what the diagram contains. And the reason for that is that A, images are hard, right? Images are very hard and your image might fail to load, for instance, even People who are not as enmeshed in the developer space and even people who are may still struggle to read flowcharts, right? Like tons of people could benefit from having a more like a more fleshed out description kind of outside of the metadata of the image. So that is probably how I would handle this is just providing a very kind of surface level alt text, like literal alt text, all attribute there, and then follow it up with text that describes the image in immense depth. And I would actually consider that a usability win. These two things can complement each other, right? Some people would probably prefer to look at the image and make sense of things. Some people would struggle that struggle with that even if they are capable of visually seeing the image, they may still prefer things broken down in words. And I don't know, text is the universal medium. So where possible, I default towards having more text. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, the recommendation would be don't say, and here is this diagram that explains it, and then don't explain what's going actually going on behind the scenes. Behind it would be, take a look at this diagram that demonstrates the flow of this request through these surfaces. Then you have the diagram, and the alt would be something like a flowchart of a request through X, Y, and Z surfaces. And then after the image, you'd have paragraphs that are like, in the above diagram, you can see the request first hits the authentication portal or whatever. I don't know. Breaking it out like that. I, I still think that would be probably the most broadly usable. And it's also the most resilient because, again, images might not load or something like that. Like most accessibility things, it just ends up being good design. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that guidance. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. By the way, I... Again, I don't want to make out like I am the end-all be-all of accessibility. That is absolutely not my intent. I, and I know that there are people here who have some really great expertise in this kind of stuff. So I would encourage, if you disagree with me, please feel free to request the mic or reply to the space tweet with your context there, because I am just one guy sharing my thoughts on this. Yeah, something I appreciate, though, is that you always, I feel like, do a good job of Sometimes you'll give me like what you, your kind of like opinion of what you think a quote unquote best practice would be. And then also if there's a kind of consensus view of the, or not consensus, but something ap approximating a consensus. Cause it, it seems like you're, you're very plugged in and you see these conversations going. And even though people differ on certain specific ways of implementing stuff, there are like general guidelines that most people seem to agree on when it comes to accessibility but i found that interesting you said that how alt text is something that has shifted over the years yeah that is i would almost definitely blame that on social media and yeah blame is the word there because social media as it's become more more common to expose alt text fields most people's introduction to the world of alt text is through social media right is through 
Twitter harassing you for not having included alt text on an image or people passive aggressively replying to your images with one of the alt text spots that'll just spit out whatever the alt text was. But there is no context in those things of providing multiple levels of alt there. And the other thing too is that historically, like there was better HTML support for these kinds of things. There used to be like a long desk attribute that you could apply on images that would be like, the idea is you would actually pass it a URL to a web page, and that web page would contain the full long description just in text. Obviously, we don't do that nowadays for a myriad of reasons. And I'm pretty sure long desk has actually been super deprecated. It used to be the sense of people understood that Alt was a very succinct description of here's what it is. But nowadays, out of necessity, because there is no better tooling to provide descriptions unless you're very contextually like in the tweet or something like giving a fully fledged image description. Nowadays, pretty much the only API we have for that is the alt attribute. And so as a result, it has shifted to we've had longer and longer alts instead of doing more and more of like in-body descriptions. That's interesting. Do you feel like there's any other things that come to mind that are like used to be something that might be like a common thing to do, but because of the shifting APIs and shifting standards is no longer like a best practice that someone may still be doing that they should update? The web is full of those things. If you've ever used a table, for instance, for a layout, it's that, right? That's what that is. But also what we've, what I would say too is I think that we had a period of web development where it was very common to rely on third-party styles, for instance, third-party style libraries, CSS frameworks, whatever. Twitter's bootstrap was one of the like big offenders here, right? But now, or instance that we also had like material design and whatnot, right? Trusting that third parties or other companies would have had things settled, right? Like, obviously, Google is so big, they have to be doing something right. Um, when in truth, like a lot of those like bootstraps and material designs and other CS frameworks were not built with accessibility in mind. This is pretty clearly demonstrable when you actually test it and run accessibility tests on things. And so what I've been seeing over the uh, past few years is, especially as tooling for your own like self-service design systems, right? As, the, as that tooling improves, people have moved away from CSS frameworks like bootstrap or material design. And yet, a lot of the design patterns that we popularize as a result have stuck around. And a lot of these are not for the better. We have minimalism is one of those things where it can almost be a bit of a dirty word, right, amongst accessibility people. Because we've all seen designs where, oh, we don't really want to show labels for these form fields. So instead, we're going to use placeholders. And those placeholders are going to have abysmal color contrast. But we're going to recommend it because minimalism, it's better, right? Um, and so I think as we move away from defaulting to those CSS frameworks, we've still had some of those design patterns linger. And I think that's something we're only now starting to like dig our way out of and being like, oh, wait, actually, no, Google didn't know best this whole time. That kind of stuff, too. So, yeah, I don't yeah, know if that answers your imagine, question. But... No, yeah, that definitely did. And I would imagine with a lot of those projects, they are something that gets put out by the company and they're like, hey, look, we have an open source thing. And then it may not necessarily have like 
ongoing investments and upgrades and new versions and bug fixes and all that kind of stuff. But I'd be curious, are there any CSS frameworks that you do think get accessibility? I work on one at Microsoft, but it's largely designed for Microsoft Learn. I spend fewer days with CSS frameworks too. I tend to enjoy bespoke CSS as well. So yeah, I, I would say that I know that a lot of work has been put into ensuring that CSS frameworks are more and more accessible. Not to open a can of worms, but I'm pretty sure that's a big thing for Tailwind, for instance, right? Is like ensuring that you have colors that can be used in contrasting ways, stuff like that. But I also think that CSS frameworks have a bit of a problem in general that makes them hard for accessibility, which is that like, CSS frameworks intentionally decontextualize something, but accessibility is innately contextual a lot of times. It really matters where a thing is and what state it's in. And so we had, there was a wave of, particularly early on in React prominence, there was a wave of CSS and component libraries that one I'm remembering is called semantic UI, where there was this notion of, oh, anything can look like anything and behave like anything. And the core tension of anyone who cares about semantic HTML is that not everything should look like everything, right? Like, sure it can. Yeah, except the screen reader is like, what do I do with it? It'd be anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when you put too much stock in your CSS framework for solving things, you end up missing out on other things that are necessary to provide an equitable user experience. And it's not enough to change the CSS class to make something red to indicate a warning state, right? You have to like also display an icon. You have to do some ARIA stuff. And I worry, this is my grand nuanced take on Tailwind and things like it, not specifically about Tailwind, but just around the philosophy of Tailwind, which is that CSS classes by themselves are not a sufficient model for user interfaces, not a sufficient API for them. And I worry about this notion of using class, CSS class, as like the Omni API for these things. I think when you do that, you de-emphasize the importance of things like semantic HTML and ARIA and the necessary JavaScript interactions for things. And because the majority of developers are cited, um, we're going to be biased towards things that visually look right. So if you're not super diligent about things like your semantic markup and your ARIA and stuff like that. If you're instead leaning more heavily on things like CSS classes, including those provided by CSS frameworks, you can have things that look right, but don't behave right. So I have actually a blog post about this called Style with Stateful Semantic Selectors. But that is that's my grand nuance take about things like Tailwind and really just CSS frameworks in general, right? Is that I think they overemphasize the role of the CSS class in building a usable interface. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And we've talked about this, you and me, before, but if you try and shove all of this into just doing it with CSS classes, like what stuff are you missing that maybe you'd want to fill in with JavaScript? Sure. So you're going to have things like focus management is a really big one, right? As we have more and more dynamic apps with modals popping up and all sorts of stuff, right? The kind of nifty CSS only hacks or whatever, like the famous or infamous, notorious perhaps, a checkbox hack that I don't know if you've ever done that, but using a hidden checkbox and then using it like the checked pseudo state to key off of whether to show or hide a sibling, those like 
those are nifty hacks that ultimately fall super flat when it comes to How else can i make cs turing complete though yeah, you know, that is a fantastic question. And I'm going to, again, whether it should be, we can talk about could, but I'm more about the should. And I, I like my CSS Turing incomplete, perhaps. No, I, but yeah, like you can do some really clever things, but ultimately user interfaces on the web are a combination of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And they all work together. Like they all harmonize. It's beautiful when they work well. And I think sometimes... We get a little too clever with how CSS only we could be, and we miss out on things like focus management for if you open up this modal or whatever, open up a pop-up. And then uh, also ARIA is a big thing. So ARIA states in particular. For those who are unfamiliar, ARIA is a set of attributes. There's 36 of them, I think, last I counted, that all explicitly, they don't add any functionality. All they do is curate how an element is exposed to assistive technology such as screen readers. And some of these are classified as ARIA states. For instance, if you have a button that toggles whether some content is shown or hidden, kind of accordion style, you could apply ARIA expanded to it. And when a screen reader navigates to that button, if the contents aren't being shown, it'll say the contents of the button and then, you know, collapsed. And then if you properly toggle that when you press the button, then it'll save the button contents and then expand it. So the user knows what the, that part of the page is in. And you can't do that with just CS or just HTML. And you could have some sort of toggled, shown, hidden state with CS alone. You could hack your way to that, but it's incomplete, right? We recognize that there's experiences that could or should be conveyed to disabled people, real disabled people who are missing a key context. And so... We could be a bit more strategic about this. I see you've pinned my style, style with semantics, stateful selectors article. and Very succulent blog post. Thank you. Thank you. And one of the things I recommend is if we recognize that in certain contexts like ARIA expanded, we need that ARIA attribute. That is a core part of providing an equitable, accessible experience. Then maybe we start with that, right? We start with ARIA expanded, and then we use ARIA expanded in our CSS selectors. And that way we ensure that like, our CS is harmonizing with our HTML, providing all everything we need. We're and going back to countering the biases that the vast majority of developers are, will have. The vast majority of developers are cited. So again, they're going to prioritize what visually looks right. If you, for instance, tie your CSS to your ARIA, then things are only gonna look right if you're using the ARIA correctly. It's a good way to hack the um that bias, right? That visual bias towards enforcing your own accessibility. So yeah, I don't know. It's tricky, but anytime someone's, oh, you can do an X only thing where X is like CS or HTML or something like that. You should maybe be a little skeptical perhaps and ask yourself, like, does this provide all of the necessary key events? Does this provide all the ARIA states? Stuff like that. Yeah, I found that that was definitely the hardest thing for me when I was first learning this stuff. It's like, how do you create like a minimum viable accessibility? Because especially with like single page apps, it's so easy to just blow away everything the browser knows or expects and you're just throwing it JavaScript that could be doing anything. So if someone's working in that single page app kind of paradigm, are there some things that they need to watch out for that they may be screwing up without even realizing it? And this is a setting you up says a lot. Oh yeah. I 
there, there's a lot. And actually, someone I want to shout out here is Manuel Matuzovic, who recently published on his blog post or on his blog an article about some of the criticisms, accessibility-wise, that he has of single-page applications. And his criticisms largely line up with mine. But aside from things like performance and stuff like that, which are absolutely big, important pieces of the pie here, single-page applications do pose accessibility problems, in part because they're so dynamic that if you're not accurately handling all of the keyboard events, or if you're not handling focus management or anything like that, you're going to create an experience that, again, looks right, but leaves people behind. Um, additionally, it's introduced a whole class of bugs in and of itself. One that you and I have talked about quite extensively, Anthony, is routing. Routing in single-page applications is fundamentally broken, and that is because browsers were built and screen readers were built with this understanding that what a navigation means is, like, you get a new document and you are pulling up a new document. And so when you're navigating between pages with a screen reader active, navigating that page basically counts as like a way to flush the screen reader of its announcements. And the screen reader will start announcing things like the page title and stuff like that. But the single page application model, which is really just cleverly hot swapping the elements that are on the page with elements that aren't on the page quite yet, because you don't actually have that hard document load, you don't get the screen reader announcements about this. The user isn't actually properly told that they're on the new page. They don't get the page title and stuff like that. And things can get even messier when you have elements that are shared across the different routes. For instance, a nav bar. If you click a link in the nav bar and you go to another page which has that same nav bar, your focus actually stays on the link that you are on. And because as far as your keyboard, keyboard cursor is concerned, nothing changed, the screen reader doesn't announce anything either. And so it can seem like you didn't actually navigate at all if you were blind and using a screen reader. And there have, been user tests done. Marcy Sutton is the big champion here. She worked with Fable Tech Labs while she was at Gatsby to put together kind of some user testing best practices around client-side routing in single-page applications. But to my knowledge, largely, a lot of those things haven't been implemented in client-side routers today. There are half implementations in some routers. Some try to do like live region announcements. Some try to like guess at some focus management stuff, but it's really tricky. It is fundamentally unsolved and it is even more fundamentally unsolved in a lot of the big routers that people use today. Um, there, there are some routers that if I were to start reciting them, you would know the names of that just haven't implemented this feedback at all. And this is, this leaves people in a position where if you're working, if you're building a single page application for your users, you have to roll your own routing solution, which is also not great because I, for one, don't really want to uh, rely on or count on every team across every company being able to have the wherewithal, the expertise, the knowledge, whatever necessary to handle that routing. Like I would prefer this be sensibly solved and we just haven't gotten there. This is one of those things that's really tricky. I also just think in general, the component-based paradigm does introduce some accessibility trade-offs. I think that there are ways in which components can make accessibility easier, but this idea of you could have an encapsulated bit of UI that handles all of its own logic and doesn't really need to know anything about the greater context it's in means that that falls apart when you need to know about the greater context you're in. So if you have a component that introduces a heading, what heading level should it be? That depends on where the component is rendered, right? And that is messy and stuff like that too. I think that kind of this class of like client-side rendering and single page applications and componentization, 
they all have this interrelated muck of accessibility issues that you can work around, but I think it just introduces a whole lot of extra load for teams working in that space that I don't think we as an industry are always truthful about. Yeah, tons to think about there. Yeah, it's really tough too, especially because those tend to be the tools that we like give to beginners. And it's, here you go, build sites with this. And then we also don't really teach them much about accessibility, mm -hmm. setting them up with the least accessible tools possible and none of the knowledge to fix it. So it's a huge cluster. Yeah, absolutely. We got about 10 minutes left here. Everyone's still welcome to come up and ask questions if you got them. I would be curious, though, to get a little bit into show my chat. Is that still a going concern oh, sure. for you? I haven't done a whole lot of work on it, but what this is, is I, when I got into streaming, I wanted to show, I wanted to show off the chat as part of my, like, stream overlays. And so I built, it turns out you can do that with web tech because Twitch provides all of the chat through IRC. So you can access it with WebSockets and stuff like that. And what ended up happening was I found that I had a couple of other streamer friends who wanted to do very similar. We were all basically writing the same code in different ways. And if you are not a web developer and you want to show your chat on your stream, it is unfair that you have to resort to either some super proprietary tech or you have to be a web developer, right? Neither is particularly ideal. So I created a website called showmy.chat, which is an on-demand Twitch chat generator that lets you pick a theme. I've got some themes in there I'm quite proud of, and some of them that are interesting thought experiments, I guess. Horses. Yes. And so, yeah, if you're interested in using Twitch for content creation, I would highly recommend checking it out. It's designed to just basically spit out a URL that you can plug into OBS and display your chat. Um, but yeah, I, again, haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to work on that or maintain it as of late, but it works and it works very reliably. Always looking for more people who could get involved in that. But yeah, I see we yeah, got- Yeah, for sure. Few... Yeah, speaking of streaming, yeah. got Nikki T. Hey, what's up, friends? Hey, Nick. Hey, yeah, speaking of show my chat, that's not what I was going to ask. I always, I raised my hand just as you transitioned to talking about show my chat. That's no, all good. Yeah, feel free to ask. Yeah, me. but I was going to say show my chat's pretty awesome. I've been using it on my stream for a long time. It's only recent. I'm starting to use Restream, so I'm using their overlay because I need it for both the outputs. But I was, that's just a side note, but I know you had talked about YouTube integration for show my chat, Ben. So I, w <laughs> I wonder if we could somehow make Restream work with it too. But anyways. That's a little controversial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm getting spicy here. Not really. Yeah, no, the question, I and it's really open-ended, it's just in regards to the routing, which is an accessibility. It's just funny because the Gatsby team is at Netlify now, and we just had a overview of Gatsby the other day, and Marcy Sutton had worked, because Marcy used to work at Gatsby, like you said, and she worked on Reach Router, and Reach Router is... Reach is built by the same people that created React Router and Remix and React Consulting and all that stuff. And it just, they basically had other things to do, but they basically forked it and they kept working on it. And that's what's in Gatsby at the moment. But the thing I was curious about is I'm surprised that browsers haven't made like push state in the history API more accessible. Like when you push a state onto the history, you're altering the history. So 
I'm surprised they haven't, unless there's something I'm not aware of. Hey, if I push state and say, go to here now, reread the page title and, and so on and readjust the navigation, I don't know, readjusting the focus might not be part of that, but I'm just surprised there hasn't been any kind of movement on that in the browser space and less in developer land. Yeah, I would need to look into that more more thoroughly as well. And part of this too is I know that browsers have been working on things like view transitions, I think is what it's called now, which is the whole bit where if you wanted to smoothly, animatedly transition from one page to another, you can do that and you can take advantage of the navigation API as a part of that. But as for whether that pushes state to assistive tech, I'm like in, in the kind of client side routing sense of like when you do push state, I'm not entirely certain. I would need to look into that. But there's still quite a few, like the proof is in the pudding of if you're using a lot of those single page apps and you test it, you realize, oh, hey, th this single page app framework isn't actually doing for me what I thought it might be doing. I'm not getting those announcements, yeah. uh, stuff like that. And it seems like new routers are coming out every day too, which is also interesting. But yeah, yeah. I would love to just... I don't know. I would love to just get have a come to Jesus meeting with like the developers from all the different routers and be like, we need a manifesto of what it is a single page application router needs to do. We need to publish this online. And then anyone who's like looking to build their own bespoke router can like just look at this checklist and be like, oh, yes, I am handling focus management. Yeah, no, for sure. Let's make router fest 2023 happen. <laughs> there we go. I would attend. I would attend. But the, here's the thing. If we do RouterFest, it has to, in the middle of RouterFest, it has to move elsewhere and then not tell the disabled people where it's gone. All right. All right. That's, I don't think I would put that in place because I would feel very uncomfortable. But that, that could... It's performance yeah, art. It, it could okay. make for a very interesting and probably last venue ever. <laughs> Did somebody mention performance? <laughs> Is that how you I call guess, Henry Helderica? You just say the word performance? That or Toronto. Ah, yes. Mr. Elvetica. Cool. Anything else you want to ask, Nick, while you're up here? No, that was it. And it was, it's really more open-ended. Yeah. It, it wasn't so much for you to answer it, Ben. It was just more curious about... Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, man. Absolutely. Always good chatting, Nick. Yeah. yeah, I think the idea of some sort of like spec-like thing to say what a single-page app router would be, that would be, I think, really valuable. I've seen Redwood struggle with this, and yeah, that would be pretty interesting. It would require a lot of coordination, though, I would imagine. Absolutely. Awesome. We're getting close to the top of the hour here. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with or links or just words of wisdom? Sure. For anyone who's looking to learn more about accessibility, there is a conference coming up in March called AxCon. It is hosted by DQ Systems, which is a pretty well-known accessibility resource. They provide a whole lot of like accessibility consulting for companies. AxCon will be, I believe it's March 15th and 16th. It is totally free. It's totally virtual. There's several tracks. So whether you're involved in development or design or business or marketing or whatever, there's a track for you. Uh, and I'm actually speaking. I will be the last talk in the developer track on Thursday the 16th. And I will be giving a talk on hijacking screen readers with CSS. This is absolutely my favorite talk to give. We go through some absolutely punishing in 
I think, hilarious examples of misleading screen readers with CS alone. And we use those as a springboard to go on an odyssey through the history of screen readers and dive into browser and operating system internals and all in the name of providing good user experiences for people. So if that sounds interesting to you, or if any of the other talks sound interesting, y'all should go sign up. I believe it's DQ, that's D-E-Q-U-E dot com slash A-X-E dash C-O-N. But yeah, you see it, it's been pinned now. Y'all should absolutely attend. There's tons of great talks going on and it's just a great way to learn more and see what people are thinking about in this space. Awesome. Yeah, definitely highly recommend people check that out. It should be a wealth of great knowledge. I've seen you give this talk a couple of times and it's definitely a really fun one and open your eyes to a lot of interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you as always. And yeah, I think this will about close it out for us now. And I hope you enjoyed your time here. This is JavaScript Jam. We do this every Wednesday at this time. And yeah, if you're interested in speaking here and want to join us as a guest, feel free to DM. And yeah, I think this will about close it out. So thanks so much, Ben. Thank you all for having me. All right. Later, everybody.